We are a generation of exhausted people. I think we can agree on that. Uh, in fact, uh, months ago when COVID shut down the country, I'm curious how many of you that you were suddenly not able to go to work or school and you basically had to shelter in place. How many of you found that forced break and time up, time off a little refreshing? For yeah, okay. So uh, th- I was hearing that a lot from people that were just, they just felt relief because suddenly, suddenly everything just shut down. Suddenly you didn't have to make any decisions. Suddenly the decision power was removed from you and the, and the responsibility taken away to make all these different decisions. Hey, just stay home. Hope you got enough toilet paper. Uh, the world just came to stop. And for many of you, you were just forced to stop everything. Uh, You couldn't go to work, you couldn't go to school, you couldn't go to social engagements, and nearly every business was shut down, and you were just forced to push pause on everything and just stay home. And and of all things, it was somewhat refreshing to, for at least for a few days, because you had limited options and limited activities, and you loved it. But for those of you that are more like me and my wife, that that didn't happen, you know, you still had to go to work like normal, or actually, you just had to adapt. It actually made more work for you. Uh, you know, all of that, just, it just kept going. You're a little bitter. I'm a little bitter. You know, I get that. Because it's like everyone else was getting a snow day, and we still had to go to school. Like, that was no fun at all. But a big part of the relief and the tension that was felt is because especially as Americans, as Americans, we are just tempted uh, to to, and baited into living a life and getting this pace going and living life at an unsustainable pace where there is no breathing room and there is no margin. Uh, Without really thinking about it, we have a tendency to just add a little thing and add a little thing and add a little thing to our life. Uh, But the problem is by doing this, Uh, and doing this in our daily lives is it's beginning to rob us. It's beginning to rob us of the joy of life. It's robbing us emotionally. It's robbing us physically, uh, relationally, and spiritually. And then you combine that with all the adaptations that we have had to make to deal with COVID. And every day is just lived with so much uncertainty where any plans that we make are just fragile at best. And we find ourselves just extra fatigued and exhausted. In fact, there are many of us that we're just kind of longing to get back to normal. But part of the problem is some of us forget that before COVID, normal for us was still an unsustainable pace in our life. We forgot that before the pandemic that we were living a life where our physical and our mental and our spiritual energy uh, was not at the level it needed to be for us to live as our best selves and engage as we should be with the people and the activities around us that matter the most. But the good news is today's life app will allow you to change that and allow you to find greater joy and almost in a sense, as impossible as it sounds, to feel like you're taking your life back from this thing that just seems to be pulling it out of control. But there is no neutrality when it comes to today's life app. You either either suffer the consequences of not applying it or you reap the benefits by, by applying it. There's just no neutrality. You get to decide. So today, I'm going to just tell you two stories real quick. One story where this life app was overlooked and one where it was applied so that you can see how you can either suffer the consequences or reap the benefits of this life app. And then I'm going to give you a couple of practical applications to help you. So that's what we're, where we're going for the next few minutes. Now to do that, 
I want to open with our first story. If, if you have your Bible or you have your Bible app, we're going to be in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 19. It's page 682. Uh, just kidding. Uh, this, story, this story has to do with an amazing man named Elijah. And uh, this particular story is one of my favorite from the Old Testament, uh, largely because I can deeply relate to what we're going to be talking about today. Now, Elijah was an amazing prophet. He did some amazing things. Uh, God did amazing things through him. And Elijah was a prophet during the time of King Ahab. And King Ahab was a horrible king. He was king of Israel. And he was married to a woman whose name may be familiar to you. Her, her name was Jezebel. And she had her issues. Uh, she worshipped a false god, they Baal, and she introduced Baal worship into Israel. And obviously this was detestable to God, and it was detestable to Elijah. So basically there's this huge tension. There's these uh, tense, intense conversations between Elijah and the king and Jezebel. And Elijah's like, hey, I got a great idea. How about we put Baal and God in a cage match? And let's see how that turns out. Let's go up to Mount Carmel, and we're going to go up there, and, and you guys can sacrifice to your God. I'll sacrifice to my God, and whichever God brings fire down on the altar, we'll just all agree that that is the one true God. So Jezebel and the 450 prophets of Baal are like, this is a great idea, bring it on. Elijah's like, all right, bring it on. It's on like Donkey Kong. So they go to Mount Carmel. Elijah says, okay, you guys go first, prophets of Baal. So they sacrifice a bull and they put it on the wood, the, uh, the altar they built, and then they begin to pray. Well, this starts early in the morning and this begins going on for hours and uh, all the way to noon, and not surprisingly, nothing happens. And then this is one of my favorite parts because Elijah begins doing a little trash talking. So he's kind of off to the side and he's like, hey guys, what's, what's wrong? What's going on? Maybe you're not being loud enough. Maybe Baal is like deep in thought and that's why he's not answering you. Shout louder or perhaps he's busy. You know, he, I mean, the guy's got a lot on his plate. Uh, maybe he just needed a break. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's on vacation. Or um, maybe he's sleeping, sleeping and needs to be awakened. Now, as a side note, the interesting and ironic thing of Elijah's taunts is he's tapping into all the wondering that we can do when it comes to God. Because, see, when God doesn't do what we want, when we want it, the way we want it, when things aren't going our way, what do we do? We begin to wonder, am I not praying right? Am I not praying enough? Am I not praying loud enough? Is he just too busy? Or, or maybe he's just not interested, or he's just simply not there. So there's so much more to this lesson than we realize. And Elijah is just unrelenting in his taunts, and finally he stands up like, all right, enough. My turn. Then Elijah says to all the people, now word had been put out, so there are thousands of people gathered to watch this spectacle. Then Elijah said to all the people, all right, come over here to me. They came to him. He repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. He dug a trench around it, large enough to hold 24 pounds of seed. He arranged all the wood. He cut the bull into pieces. He laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, all right, go fill four large jars with water. Pour it on the offering and the wood. And so they do. He says, all right, do it again. So they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. And so water, it's just soaked. It ran down all around the altar and even filled the trench. 
Okay, and then he stands up. And you can just imagine the drama of this moment because everybody's just watching as he's doing all this and building this. All this water's been poured on this. And then he steps back and he looks to heaven and says, God of Israel, Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, answer me. Show all of these people that you and you alone are the one true God. And instantly, fire rains down from heaven. It consumes the altar, the stones, the water, even the soil. Everyone falls on their knees and says, Elijah's God is the one true God, but Elijah is not done. He essentially turns to the 450 false prophets of Baal, And he says to the people, these men have deceived you. Seize every one of them. And then he ends up with the sword, kills all 450 of these false prophets. It's just this massive victory for the kingdom of God. And this is where our story picks up in 1 Kings 19.1. Now Ahab, he goes back because apparently Jezebel didn't show up. She was too busy. Uh, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, Elijah, I was wrong. You were right. I am turning from my ways and I'm following your God. And that is not what she said. She said, no, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. So instead of backing down, Jezebel puts a price on the head of Elijah. Now after what happened, it would be like Terminator versus gladiator, okay? There's really no competition. I mean, he got the God of the universe to respond to him in this huge, dramatic, public fashion. It was 450 to 1. And single-handedly, he took them all out. I mean, he is the man. So he gets this message, and we expect him to say, Jezebel, who, who do you think you're threatening? And you're not just threatening me, you're threatening the God that I serve, the one that just showed himself in such a dramatic and spectacular way in front of thousands of witnesses. I alone killed 450 with one sword. So if you want to play this game, bring it on. You name the place and the time. That's what you would expect him to say. But that's not what he does. Instead, Elijah is feeling shock. It's like, why, why is this happening? I mean, did didn't I do, aren't I doing exactly what God wants me to do? And, and, and the buildup would have been huge to this event. I'm sure it was stressful for him. He probably had not slept leading up to this. And, and because all along, there had to be a little piece in the back of his mind of what if God doesn't show up? What if this doesn't work out? But God did show. And for a moment, Elijah had to think, this is amazing. Everything is finally going to change. God is truly with me. But instead of national change, there's a price on his head. We're told Elijah was afraid. It's like, seriously, Elijah? I mean, didn't you see what happened? And then you killed 450 men single-handedly, and you're afraid? Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, and he sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. See, this moment is one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite moments in the Old Testament because of the, it's just so human. I mean, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in one of those moments just like you get to the point of, God, if you're there and you're listening, I can't do this anymore. I can't take this anymore. 
I've had enough. The, the stress is, is so overwhelming. Work is so overwhelming. The pace of my life is so overwhelming. All the demands on my life and the people in my life around me, I, I, I can't do it anymore. I've had enough. And it leads you and it leads me and it leads Elijah to a dangerous place because it leads to disillusionment and it leads to discouragement. It leads us to anxiety and depression because the circumstances of life get bigger and bigger and bigger in our mind and God gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And our defenses are down and we're compromised just like Elijah. And he's, he finally says, just take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. See, Elijah is, is just, he's toast. He's been working and working and trying to control the outcomes in his life and in his country and influence everything that he can around him. And he's just emotionally and mentally and physically and spiritually exhausted. And he's confused. And our tendency, especially as 21st century Americans, is, is we just try to work and work and try and control all of the outcomes. And we say yes to too many things because we're afraid of somehow missing out on something. Or we say yes to everything for our kids because we're afraid of them missing out on something that, you know, might affect their development. And they're going to go, you know, they're going to be convicts in the future. And before we know it, we're just emotionally and mentally and physically and spiritually exhausted. And when this happens to us, we are compromised and we're vulnerable. And God knows this. He knows this about Elijah. He knows this about you. He knows this about me. And what God does next is incredibly important. Because see, what we think is, especially again as Americans, what Elijah needs is a pep talk. He just needs a pep talk. Like, come on, Elijah. Did you see what happened at Mount Carmel? Did you see how things went down? You know, God saying to him, did you see what I did? See, you know I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm the God of the universe. Let's go. But that's not what God does. Eventually, God does give Elijah a pep talk, but that's not what he does first. What God does first is so incredibly significant. Elijah's exhausted. God, I can't do this anymore. Just take my life. Then he lay down under a bush and he fell asleep. Have you ever just been so overwhelmed and exhausted? Like, I just, I, I just want to sleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked, and holy Uber eats. There by his head was some baked bread over hot coals. I mean, can you imagine how awesome that would taste? And a jar of water, and he ate, and he drank, and then he lay down again. After a while, and I suspect, personally, it was several hours later, then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him in such personal, intimate gentleness. He said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. You see the pattern? Elijah's exhausted, completely spent. He finally reaches a breaking point and it's then that he gets away and he gets alone and he just pours his heart out to God. He pours his heart out to God and then he just sleeps. And then he eats and then he sleeps, and then he eats, and then he walks, and then he sleeps again. And the whole time, what's happening? He's getting recharged. He's recharging physically and spiritually and emotionally. And then, and only then, does God come and speak to him. 
But God didn't speak to him before that because Elijah wouldn't have been able to hear him because he was completely drained. And this leads to our life app today, this powerful life app of rest. And, and see, here's the problem. We so underappreciate and respect and value rest, especially in our 21st century driven, time conscious Western society. We just neglect it and we're paying a price for it. And our families are paying a price for it. Now, let me speak to the Christians specifically. Unfortunately, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, rest is rarely mentioned, right? I mean, we talk often about prayer and devotions and reading your Bible. We talk about the discipline of being generous and giving with your financial resources. And those are all incredibly important disciplines. But rest is actually rarely mentioned, which is ironic because rest is talked about all throughout Scripture. In fact, from the, from the very beginning, it's described that God created the world in six days. And what did He do on the seventh? He rested, not because He needed it. But to model this for us, and then he made it one of the Ten Commandments, and then it's modeled throughout Scripture, through the pages of Scripture. In fact, one of the interesting things is one of the key words that is used to describe heaven when we die is entering into God's rest. And right now, that sounds pretty amazing. But somehow, those of us who are Christians, we, we miss this. And what the kingdom of God and what the people around you who love you the most need the ones you love and they love you. They, what they need isn't a burned out you. What they need and the kingdom of God need is a rested, replenished, energized, and passionate you. And so this is a serious issue. And even if we don't understand this, if we run at life at an unsustainable pace, life eventually falls apart and we fall apart. Now, the medical community has been talking about this for years. They have been telling you and telling me and telling us we need at least eight hours of sleep a night. But we don't believe it. And we know that we don't believe it because the average American gets 6.8 hours of sleep a night. Now, we can operate on less. In fact, in our 30s especially, Shauna and I, actually, we kind of bragged. I mean, we had four kids in five years. We just never slept, okay? And we, we kind of bragged in our 30s about, hey, we need four or five hours, and then, like, we're good. That and a jug of coffee, that's all we need. And we just kind of bragged that we were fine, but we weren't fine. In fact, when I look back at some of the relational struggles that we had, honestly, it was because we were tired. When I look back at some of the bad decisions that I made at that time in my life, it's because I was tired, and I was stressed, and I was compromised, and I was vulnerable. And whether we like it, or whether we're willing to admit it or not, we need eight hours of sleep a night, but we don't get it. Instead, we get on the treadmill of life, and we go faster and faster, and instead of eight hours of sleep, we get 6.8 hours, and when we take that throughout the week, that's nine and a half hours a week that we need sleep that we're just not getting. Multiply that times 52 weeks. It's 500 hours a year that we do not sleep that our bodies and our brains need. Now, you can mess with and argue with my math all you want, but the reality is we're just not getting the rest that we need. And so as is it any wonder that long before COVID that the quantity of prescribed anxiety and anti-depression meds were at an all-time high, and it's just gone up since. And you know who's noticing this? And this is where the parents really need to listen up. The next generation, our kids. 
In fact, a few years ago, there was a survey of over 1,000 third through 12th grade kids, and they asked these kids and these teens this question. If you were granted one wish and you have only one wish that could change the way your mother's or your father's work affects your life, what would that wish be? Now, probably like most of these parents, your guess might be that they would have more time together. 56% of parents guessed that's what their kids said. They were incorrect. The top thing third through 12th graders chose as their one wish was that their parents would be less stressed and less tired. This is a huge issue. What kids are saying is, Mom, Dad, what, what we want, what we need is arrested, replenished, and energized you. And on top of this, if, if you're a parent or a grandparent, we're setting the example. And we have to decide what kind of life do we want to, example do we want to set for our kids and what kind of faith do we want for them. And, and we're the grown-ups. And we know that the pace of life affects us, especially right now. So we've got, we've got to fight for this. You've got to fight for this, not only for you, but for the people in your life that you care about because you know this about you. You are better. You are a better you when you are replenished and refreshed and rested. In fact, uh, some of us would say that we work better under pressure. I'd be one of those people that would say that. We can do that for a time, but we're not designed to do that week after week after week, long periods of time. Now, do you know who got this right? Jesus did. And I know when you hear that, you're like, okay, Chad, Jesus got everything right. That's not fair. But we need to understand, we exist as a church to help each other in our following of and obeying of Jesus and to help people find and follow Jesus more closely every day. Every day. And he modeled this for us. So to follow Jesus is to follow not just his words and his commands, but to follow his example. Because you see, tomorrow, when you open up your to-do list, you open up your calendar app, whatever, and I know you've got a ton of things to do, but when you open up your to-do list, there is not going to be an action item on your list that says, be Savior of the world. Okay? If it does, I've got a great counselor in Andover I'll refer you to. But the reason I bring this up is because every day Jesus pulled up his to-do list, on that list was be Savior of the world. And I know that you're feeling the weight of the world on your shoulders. I'm not denying that. But Jesus literally had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And yes, he was fully God, but he was also fully man fully human, which means that he was susceptible to being tired and exhausted and stressed just like you and just like me. So he, Jesus, is our guide. And Jesus had this pattern in his life, and it's a pattern that I am challenging you, challenging me, challenging us to adopt. Because what Jesus would do is Jesus would engage in his work, what God had called him to do, and then he would pull back and he would get away. He would get solitude, he would get rest, and he would get replenished. And what he would do when he unplugged is he would pray. He'd reflect, he'd sleep, he'd look back, he'd look forward, and then he'd re-engage. And this was his pattern over and over again. Like some of you, Jesus was a morning person. And we see that he would regularly get up even before the sun, before everyone else, so that he could go and have time, just him 
and just as Heavenly Father. And we're, just, we're also told that it was not unusual for him to withdraw to the Mount of Olives, which is a great secluded area, just a short valley's walk across from Jerusalem so that he could go have time alone. And anytime you see Jesus do an incredible miracle, pay attention to what happens next. You notice that afterwards, he pulls away. Because whenever this happened, it took all kinds of mental and spiritual and physical and emotional energy as he engaged people, which meant that after he needed to, he needed to rest and he needed to recharge. Now, let me show you one example. This comes right after Jesus feeds 5,000 people. So this is Matthew chapter 14, a huge miracle, like this instant, like fish and chips buffet right in the middle of the desert. And uh, if, if this were us, knowing that Savior of the world was on our to-do list, we would have go like, I got limited time, I got a lot to do, I got to move on to the next thing. Jesus does not do that. Immediately was the first word. Immediately. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Then after he dismissed them, and now he's alone, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And there it is. He works hard, but then he withdraws from everyone. He made time to rest and recover and replenish and pray. And in fact, he stayed there all night in solitude. I'm sure he slept for part of the night until shortly before dawn, new day, rested and recovered replenished, he re-engaged, and then shortly later, he does another amazing thing, and after that, he withdraws again to refresh and recharge. This was Jesus's model, his approach. He models a sustainable pace, and this is at the core of the REST app, because your life and my life moves to a better place when we move at a sustainable pace. Your life moves to a better place when you move to a sustainable place, pace. If you run nonstop at a 10-0 clip with everything that you've got on your plate, there's rarely, if ever, a chance for rest or recovery. Your life and the relationships in your life, they're going to move to a bad place. You'll begin to break down emotionally. You'll begin to break down physically. And that will begin to flow out onto and into the people in your life. But the opposite is true, that your life and your relationships move to a better place when you move at a sustainable pace. Three weeks ago, uh, for the Focus app, I touched on this. If you missed that talk, please go back and listen to that. And I know all of you, you're all super smart people, and you're super smart. You can figure out how to apply this REST app. But even so, I want to challenge you with just a couple practical things to do and uh, to really apply this app. And the first thing is, I just want to challenge you today to go home or to log off and to get your calendar out and to pick a day in the next 14 days, plan a 24-hour Sabbath. Just in the next 14 days, just pick a day. And so for 24 hours, I'm going to do nothing but unplug and rest and relax. Hopefully in complete solitude. But if you're married, maybe with your spouse, it depends on how much they stress you out. Uh, I, I know all the reasons too that come to mind when you, you go, there's just no way that I could block 24 hours with all my responsibility with my kids or my work or my spouse or whatever. And as cliche as it sounds, where there is a will, there is a way. 
Okay, you're going to have to reorganize a few things. If you have kids, it may be a Herculean effort to get somebody to take responsibility for your kids. Whatever the challenges are, the vast majority of you, you could make this happen. To plan a 24-hour Sabbath in which you'd pull away from email, from Facebook, from Twitter, from Instagram, from TikTok, your social poison of choice, to pull away from everything, uh, pull away from your work and your job, whatever it is that you do, just pull away from it all and just rest. Or do something you find life-giving. I mean, this may be a shock to you, but God actually wants you to find joy in the life that He's given you, which means a 24-hour Sabbath doesn't necessarily mean you just sit on the couch and do nothing unless that's what you want to do. Maybe it means you go on a walk, not to burn calories, but to just go be outside, to go be in nature with what God has created. Go on a hike. I mean, we've got all these amazing trails around Wichita. A lot of them are paved. Chunks of area, uh, segments of them had been old railroad tracks that they pulled out and they're paved. And so they've got these beautiful trees around them. And you can just go have this beautiful fall day. Uh, Guys, you're going to love me for this. And some of the ladies maybe too. Go play golf. Go shooting. Go axe throwing at blade and timber. Uh, just like whatever. And see, now you can go, honey, Chad said I had to go play golf and handle deadly weapons and throw axes. I don't want to, but you're the one that said we should go to church more. And he said, so, so go play. Just go enjoy life. Have dinner with friends. Cook a meal together. Just, just put away the screens and the messages and just enjoy the people in your life. Enjoy your children. Or maybe you get away for 24 hours uh, from all your friends and family and you just get 24 hours of solitude. Maybe you rent a hotel room or Airbnb or VRBO in Wichita, outside Wichita. Uh, disconnect the TV. Take a book with you. Take your Kindle, your pad, whatever. Take a nap. Rest. Read. Pray. Spend some time alone, just you and God, or maybe just you, God, and your spouse. Uh, maybe you're a couple with children. I'm just telling you, one of the very few things, I didn't do a lot of good things right as a husband uh, and a dad. One of the few was that I regularly prioritized time alone with my wife, even when our kids were little. And though money was super tight for most of that, uh, we were able to plan simple little getaways. Uh, a few years ago, there's this little place up in Manhattan, Kansas, where uh, we found it's a place, it's, uh, it's just in the woods, and there's a wood-burning stove, and we can hike the trails, and we would just spend hours in front of the wood-burning stove just reading our Kindle in silence. Uh, and a few years ago, when we still had a couple of teens at home, uh, more than once, I got us a room at the Homewood Suites in Waterfront, where if you get in there, you do not feel like you're in Wichita, which that's the whole point. And uh, we would just have a little staycation, like just 24 hours right here in Wichita. And, and now that we're at the stage of life that we're at, we, we've really enjoyed, we've loved being able to help other young couples do the same. Maybe get them a gift card where they can literally get a room, you know, and offer to watch their kids overnight, but also warning them that such getaways can produce more children if not handled carefully. Uh, but see, right now, we're just so horribly fatigued. And I'll admit, it seems far more difficult right now to unplug than normal because everything now is online and on Zoom and messages and everybody just has to get a hold of us. But there's just so many concerns. But this is all the more reason for us to fight, to apply 
this app for ourselves and to help one another. I mean, that's one of the things I love about a church community, to help one another. If somebody else has kids, like, hey, I'll keep your kids for a night. You keep my kids for a night. However you do it. Because if life becomes nothing more than a series of to-do lists over and over and over again, you're just going to be robbed of life. And eventually you're going to look back and go, what have I been doing? Where is my life going? It's going so fast. So God, because He loves you, He commands you and I to rest. And in the big picture, it's to remind us that He has the world in His hands. We don't have the whole world in our hands. It is not all up to us. So at least once a week, God said you need to completely take a break. So my challenge is just mark a day on your calendar within the next two weeks where for 24 hours you'll just disengage, recharge, refresh. No TV, no social media, no screens. Just re-engage and then, and then re-engage the next day and you're going to be better for the people around you that you care about, for wherever you work, whatever. Second thing I want to recommend that you do for just a week, though I hope it sticks, but for just a week, before you get in bed at night or before you go to sleep, do not check email or social media. Okay, confession. This is something I've struggled with for a long time, so I'm committing to do this with you. See, normally I'm going to bed, uh, get in bed and think, you know what? I'll just check my email real quick, I'll check Facebook, I'll check Instagram, and before you know it, I had a half an hour. An hour has gone by. An hour that I could have been sleeping. And especially right now, what you see on social media, especially these days, if there's a message uh, that you get or you get an email that's touching on a sensitive subject or a problem or a conflict or it's cryptic, and it raises concerns or questions in your mind. When you see all that stuff right before you go to sleep, how well do you sleep? You don't. You can't get a full, peaceful, good night's sleep. But if you're rested and replenished, and the next day you open up that difficult thing, then you're more ready to engage. You'll be in a better state of mind to deal with these problems. I'll give you another idea as well. When the alarm goes off in the morning, you're kind of fumbling around for your phone, hold off. Hold off on checking your email and checking your messages. Hold off until later. You think, that's, Chad, that's unrealistic. It's not unrealistic. First thing in the morning, what you need to, to not do is check email and Twitter and social media. What you need to do is reboot your mind. In fact, honestly, the most important thing that you could be reading is engaging this or engaging your Bible app. The, the most important conversation or communication you have is just communicate with God. God, this is a new day. Help me to be what you're calling me to be today. I'm relying on you to help me accomplish what it is that you want me to accomplish today. The best thing you could do is eat something nutritious. The best thing you could do is maybe go for a walk or even a jog if you can. But if not, just, just start here. Or maybe you, the, the YouVersion Bible app, you can download a reading plan. Or maybe you get a devotional or something where you just have a moment where God becomes your focus and you just get your heart and your mind in the best place before you start your day and everything that day is going to throw at you. And here's the final thing I want to challenge you to do. Besides a 24-hour Sabbath in the next 14 days, I would challenge you to mark your calendar and plan some quarterly recharging every 90 days, every three months. And here's what I mean. For many, if not most of you, if not all of you, this has been a really intense stretch. You've been on a really intense stretch. 
And it's likely connected in ways the pandemic has just thrown off the rhythm of life. But either way, us, our work, our family, uh, our life, school, all of this, it's just been an intense stretch. And you've got to make sure that you have time for rest and recovery. But it will not happen if you don't plan for it and then guard that, guard that with all of your strength because everything's going to try and rob you of that. And so that you know that I'm smoking what I'm selling, I live this. Shauna will tell you that for our entire marriage, I've always been a rhythm of planning a time for recharging and refreshing and reconnecting, even 2020. I began 2020 with a retreat. I was able to get away for a few days alone uh, just to read and pray and study and plan and have time of solitude. And then after that was when COVID hit, so all the plans went out the window. Uh, And then a longer than normal stretch went by, but then in July, we made the time and the priority and, and face the, um, the rebuke of a couple of our adult children that we were going to get in a tin can and breathe all the same air everybody else was and all that, and you're going to die, and we want you here for your grandchildren, whatever. Like, okay, we're going to go see your grandparents. So we went to, you know, July, we went to California to see my wife's family. And then this last, uh, this last October, so yesterday, uh, this, I had the opportunity to go on an organized retreat and to just get away and to be refreshed. And I know some of you don't have opportunities exactly like that, but that's not the point. It's about find something that you can do that can fit for you or once, about once a quarter. Because years ago, I learned that I needed to establish a quarterly rhythm of individual solitude or something that just my wife and I could be a part of. Something that gets me or gets us away from the day to day. And it was never easy. It always involves saying no to a million other things. Many times it cost some money, so that meant that we had to plan financially for it and say no to other expenses and no to other opportunities to say yes to this. But I'm telling you, you will not regret getting something like this on your calendar, and just marking off some days, looking three months from now, so all of November, all of December, around the end of January, somewhere in there going, hey, for like three or four days, like we're getting away, or we're planning some time or solitude, whatever. Every three months, something that forces you away to unplug, and it can make all the difference. Because like me, you want to end life well with the people in your life that are most important to you, right? We all want that. Well, one of the best ways to accomplish that is to regularly give the people in your life who you love, that love you, your family, your friends, your husband, your wife, your kids, your employers, to give them a rested, replenished, and an energized you. And if, if this means you have to say no to other opportunities, even no to extra hours at work, and, and maybe take a little hit in your income, then you make the adjustments. It's okay. So after you leave here today or after you log off, I just want you to ask this question. Is my current pace sustainable? But I don't want you to ask you that question. I want you, if you're married, I want you to go look your wife in the eyes and say, honey, You can be as honest with me as you want. I will not get defensive, and then you don't. Is my current pace sustainable? Wives, I'd love for you to do the same. Is my current pace sustainable? If you're you're single, then I want you to get 
a close friend or some of your close friends together. Maybe it's a sibling or maybe it's coworkers. And just ask this question as you look at my life over the last 90 days or so, is my current pace sustainable? And if they say yes, then what are you going to do to maintain and protect that healthy pace? And if they say no, then the choice is yours. You can choose to reap the benefits of rest or you can choose to not listen and suffer the inevitable consequences. Elijah, and he was a prophet blessed by God, by God he was not immune. Jesus was not immune. He reaped the benefits. You're not immune. I'm not immune. The choice is yours. And I'll close with this. Rest is not just about resting. Rest is always associated with trust. And if you're a God follower, a Jesus follower, rest is always associated with trust in God. And if you choose not to rest, though you may never have thought about it this way, but you're choosing to trust in you and not trust in God. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying that's what we're doing. And I know it's a bold statement, but it's the truth. When you choose to prioritize a regular rhythm of rest, it communicates, God, I'm going to do my best to get everything that I can in these five or six days, but after that, I'm going to choose to turn the reins over entirely to you, and I'm just going to rest. And by resting, I'm demonstrating to you that I trust in you. I trust that you have my present and my future in your trustworthy hands, and I'm relying on you, not me. I trust in you more than I trust in me. So do you know what the, one of the most spiritual things you could do today, you, know, you could log off or go home and do today is? Go home and take a nap. Give the kids some Benadryl. No, don't, I'm not suggesting that. Uh, get a nap. And then you wake up and you'll be a little more rested and more replenished. You're trusting in him. And God's able to speak more clearly to people who are rested and replenished and trusting in him. And that's why this Life app is so, so important. Let me pray for us. Father, I just, I humbly stand here today because I know for those of us in this room, those that are listening that for some of us it feels impossible that we could somehow get in a position where we could just feel peace and to not feel the pressure and, and the stress of everything going on around us. But Father, we're not the first ones to face this. And so I pray for everyone listening to my voice that you would partner with them with your Holy Spirit that you would guide them in the decisions that they need to make. Father, for some people, that they're, they're just desperately trying to keep themselves or their family above water financially, and the fear is if I make a change, how will this affect that? And whatever obstacles there might be, God, I pray that you would actively involve yourself and begin to open some doors and open pathways for those that would be willing to, to take the step and that you would meet them in that moment of solitude or rest. And that, Father, that they would be encouraged by and feel your presence and be encouraged by your presence so that they can face the next day or face the next week or the next season, the challenges, stronger 
and more able and more hopeful. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.